Hello, this is the We Be Imagining podcast, and I'm going to share with you an interview with Ingrid Burrington. Ingrid is an artist who writes, makes maps, and tells jokes about places, politics, and the weird feelings people have about both. She's the author of Network of New York, an illustrated field guide to urban internet infrastructure, and has previously written for The Atlantic, The Nation, The Verge, and other outlets. Her work has been previously supported by IBM Art and Technology Center, the Center for Land Use Interpretation, and Rhizome. Um, the piece that you wrote, Policing is an Information Business, because yeah. my focus is predictive analytics and child welfare. And mm-hmm. that was the first really great piece that I saw around um, CompStat. And because ACS, New York City Administration for Children's Services, implemented something very similar, ChildStat. Um, mm-hmm. And but I know that, you know, your specialty is kind of infrastructure and you've also at the School for Poetic Computation. Can you say a little bit about your background and kind of yeah. how would you define yourself? Yeah, I, I um, so I, I do a lot of different things, partly because I'm, I'm a curious person who has a lot of different interests and partly because I like have an art degree and graduated into a recession in 2009. So I kind of had to learn to improvise. I, uh, I'm most of like, I guess what I'm seen doing and am known for doing is writing and, um, occasionally artwork. I, uh, initially, I guess I don't consider, I didn't consider myself really a technology person for a very long time, so much as technology happened to the things around me and to the like power structures that I was interested in. And so I kind of had to kind of develop a literacy and understanding of them to just have a clearer analysis of what was going on around me. And I I focused a lot of my work, I guess it, it, at heart, I'm really just interested in the ways that like landscape in the built environment and like space become this, this kind of arena for understanding power dynamics and understanding how people kind of exercise power and agency um, for themselves or like kind of against other people, if, if that makes sense. And um, and I think the, the thing about computers and about the internet and about data-driven systems is that uh, they're often misunderstood as sort of being like not spatial problems, right? In the sense that like, it's something that happens on a screen. It's not something that like kind of manifests in, in the in the world um and i think that 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 kind of division between irl and and url for lack of a better word uh has pretty much been destroyed since like 2016 it should have been destroyed by like 2011 right um and a lot of my work is trying to find ways to translate the like kind of kind of make some of the stuff that seems a little bit more abstract to people a little more grounded in like physical reality just to make it also something that they can kind of wrap their heads around and, and think about as as not just something kind of like concrete and real, but also then something that maybe could be contested or like reframed or or changed. Does that does that make sense? No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I was going to ask for you on just a personal level, when did you become aware of the gravity of the situation with COVID-19 and kind of the quarantine containment measures that were being put into place like particularly in New York City I mean I I I think I probably the night I I did the dumbest thing I could 
<laughs> which was uh, went to a play. Uh, I on on I guess the eleventh, yeah, the eleventh of of March. So I should have been more concerned. Certainly, like I was. I guess I was. I was expecting that like things would happen here, but I didn't expect them to go so bad so fast. And on March eleventh, um, my friend had. Uh, invited me to go see the play The Lehman Trilogy, uh, which is a a three-hour-long play about the history of Lehman Brothers, mm -hmm. the bank. And and I was like, I don't know if this is a great idea, but I like, I'm I'm gonna go like last thing I'll do before kind of like fully kind of like avoiding people and staying home. And I remember like during so and it's like a pretty i mean the history of lehman brothers is more or less kind of the history of american capitalism um i don't know how this is now just becoming a weird plug for the play but um <laughs> you know there were like there were three lehman brothers um they were uh bavarian jewish immigrants uh came to the united states in the 1840s uh initially made their money um they ran like a, a fabric store and then they started actually reselling cotton for plantation owners in Alabama. So they were kind of direct, they, they were like middlemen directly benefiting from like plantation slavery. Um, after the civil war, they kind of moved into finance. Like, and this was when like the concept of finance was first starting. So they were like doing a lot of reselling of commodities and then eventually it kind of just became like, we, we move money around. Um, and that like their ascension as a bank is this sort of, and like the increasing complexity that gets added onto like financialized American capitalism excel that. And there's uh, it's a three hour play. So there's a few intermissions and with each intermission, there was just like progressively intense side conversation and tension in the entire theater um because it's like oh we just well act two just ended and like it's the beginning of the great depression and uh we can't we can't fly to europe anymore okay um this is interesting and then you know the next things it kind of like kept building up and it was like the the intensity of i think the intensity of the play itself kind of on top of this sense of kind of mounting doom in the audience just made for the most kind of like, it was just a really emotionally intense evening. And then the next day Broadway went dark. <laughs> and I, I kind of realized like that was like the last normal thing I will probably do in a very long time. And it was, and it was, I mean, a little weird. <laughs> wow, that's intense. It was, I mean, and I also, I like, it's funny because after I saw it, I was like, man, this is an incredible play. Like, if I could afford it, I would totally go see this again. I'm like, nope, can't do that. Maybe read it. Um, yeah. Apparently the print version of the, the script of the play is coming out in June. I'm not, I'm just, yeah. Well, will it still, right? I mean, this has yeah. such, like, yeah. indus cross-industry-wide implications, yeah. right? yeah. Yeah. And could you speak a little bit from your research focus about thinking about built landscapes and network architecture, some of your observations of even the, like the accelerating rate at which people are being mandated to stay in their homes and what that means our city like looks like and feels like yeah. and just anything that you've kind of noticed that you want to share? Yeah. I 
I mean, one of the a thing that's been really interesting uh, from from the you know spatial remove of my apartment most of the time, uh, and and occasionally the dog park is like seeing the things that like right seeing all of the things that kind of are for, like maybe taken for granted as requiring a network of people to operate right so like the first one is like looking at like fair sales for like the mta which makes up almost like half of its like budget um and they're gonna face like a massive shortfall um as a result of this pandemic which like they were already kind of a financial mess but you know instead of maybe like thinking about how to address like like it's it's interesting to re see like all of the fucking like fight over putting more police in the subways happened happened right before this and now like it's like what yeah why were we even having that conversation because you're you're not going like you're going to have the biggest budget shortfall you've probably ever had um and it's it's been interesting not even i haven't seen very much of it uh but See, like it's more like seeing the kind of anxiety around the expectation of like aggressive sort of like are the police gonna not let you go for a job what's like what how are my movements going to be restricted in that i think the the sense of like uncertainty creates like new it just it creates a new kind of like heightened uncertainties about like what what am I allowed to do and just the the impulse to play it safe means that people just don't do the things they would otherwise do. I uh, trying to think about like it's also it's interesting. One of the things I'm curious and concerned about um, is that for so long um, I feel like my my like education and like progressive lefty environments has always been like the the strength of movements is like your ability to like hold space right like to you know take over like a factory floor or kind of like come together or like mount a protest and that tool is completely unavailable and in fact like actively like uh, dangerous right for people to be engaging in right now which means that when policies that and and like public, you know, government and like government decisions like awarding contracts to companies like Palantir cap in and, you know, shitty decisions continue to happen. The like most kind of presumed tried and true tactic of kind of like people in the streets actually can't happen. Right. And I, I, it makes me think a lot about like what, what what are the tactics for like actually mustering power right now when like you can't actually just hold when like people can't actually hold space. I think that's an excellent point and something that kind of keeps me up at night because mm -hmm. I mean, in general, like the rate at which surveillance has been implemented in New York city and just like more globally through and also endorsed through people's like consumerist, like volunteer uh, enabling of it through like social media or Apple Watches, et cetera, was one thing, but now you have people actively demanding more surveillance in the name of public health and people yeah. opposing what's happening in South Korea and kind of pseudoscientific things around viral mapping or in India, how they were stamping people, um, very yeah. similar to almost how Holocaust numbers look like um, to monitor public spaces and whether somebody's quarantined to come in. And I just wonder what does, 
what does grassroots resistance look like? But I also yeah, yeah. feel like people need to be able to identify like what is actually happening because part of it is making so much headway because people are afraid. I don't know if a lot of people who are not already in this space know what's happening in, on, yeah. on the front lines of like data policy surveillance. Right. And, it's, and also like the like understanding the relationship that like public health as like a practice has like always had to surveillance and the ways in which like public health historically has like been a field like of like surveilling the most vulnerable populations of, of a community, right? Like I think about the way that like, I mean, and I'm my, my vantage point for like understanding this history is mostly um, my friend Melissa Gira Grant, who is a reporter at the New Republic and um, her beat has like largely covered like sex work and policing and understanding the ways in which like in the in the service of like protecting people or is like keeping sex workers safe as this like public health mandate you actually like kind of fuck with people's lives and and like aggressively police them is something that I've a case study that I think a lot about in relationship to what it means to kind of implement public health measures on like a global scale, like who is, who becomes like, who becomes kind of seen as like, and like even the language of it, you know, this like kind of like, we have to like, just like these, these vectors of like killing a virus. And it's like, it's literal. And it's also this interesting figurative, like who becomes like a cancer upon society when, when you're kind of treating urban space, like you're fighting a disease. It was kind of yeah, a No, it makes a lot of sense, though. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to what, it, what are your meditations on the fact that, like, for the vast majority of people who are still interacting and forming relationships outside of those who live in their house um, mm -hmm. are being mediated by proprietary software like WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Twitter. Um, and I'm wondering how that connects also to your book and this idea of, like, mm -hmm. networks that, you know, people just think that there's this unlimited resource out there, the internet, and, you know, don't necessarily know what's the infrastructure that underlies that. And kind of what are you yeah. thinking about that? Maybe, maybe on the same day, I'm trying to remember what day this happened. I got a call uh, from a friend of mine who's, uh, like, writes a column for, like, a tech column for a magazine. And he was, like, working on a column that was, like, going to be about, like, you know, what what is, like, how does like infrastructure inter like what's what's like the effect like how long can like internet infrastructure operate during like a you know massive apocalyptic pandemic and this was at the time i think he was going for lighthearted it was like oh this is this this will not do um but when i was talking to him he basically the way he was asking was basically sort of like how much time before the internet ends i'm like it's not really how it works like and i and mostly he seemed very concerned about losing netflix uh which you know fair like we're gonna be inside a lot but I think that the way that, so like internet infrastructure is largely consists of like a bunch of privately held resources um, and privately held real estate. Uh, so you have, you know, the actual cables that run uh, across like the country, across the oceans that are all owned by different companies. Um, Often they're either like leasing land, like right of way alongside railroad tracks or highways uh, at, from like either public lands or from like railroad companies. Sometimes they technically own the conduit uh, that, that the cables held inside, which is how they're able to use a tax break to make themselves into real estate investment trusts. 
instead of uh, like publicly traded companies, or I guess, no, real estate companies can be publicly traded. It's just, it's a, basically it's a tax break. This is maybe a bit wordy and you should probably cut it. Um, but the, the infrastructure that, that makes the, the physical infrastructure that makes the internet possible, like it needs to be taken care of. It needs maintenance. It needs to be upgraded. It needs to be, you know, managed and it's not ubiquitously identical everywhere. Um, and a lot, and this, this even applies on like a software level, like how things are maintained. Right. Um, I think there was a story in the times a few days ago about how Comcast was suddenly like having to rethink the way that they like kind of distributed bandwidth across their network because normally like for their like household like plans, it's like, well, we don't really need the bandwidth to be like, like it's, it's okay if it's not like that fast right now because like not a lot of people are gonna be on in their homes between like, I don't know, like 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. And now that you've got lots and lots of people working from home, it in fact is like a huge strain on the network. and. I, it's been interesting watching the rapid adoption of a lot of these tools without a lot of acknowledgement of kind of like who benefits from it. And I mean, some of it, it's like, well, it's not as though there are other options. I'm not going to begrudge anyone for using Zoom, but I do think that it's interesting that like the, like, you know, one of the primary beneficiaries of like lots of people using Zoom isn't just Zoom, it's Amazon because like a lot of their stuff is hosted on Amazon Web Services. Um, they don't own the company, but it's like a lot of the internet doesn't exist without Amazon. And, and when you kind of, when you think about that in relationship to all of the other pieces of infrastructure that that, that one company is now kind of becoming a major like crucial choke point for um, like food supply chains, uh, first aid supply chains. Um, it's it's like kind of, it's, it's a little bit worrying both how much like power they have and also like if something goes wrong in that supply chain, like how many people are gonna get fucked and like especially how many of the workers who are within it are gonna be, you know, actually taken care of. Um, I just saw a thing about how I guess they're doing like apparently they might be like doing fundraising for flex workers, which I like they're raising money, like asking people to donate money to a fund that Amazon is helping manage to help support their workers as opposed to like just giving them unemployment and like a raise, um, which uh, it's, it's <sighs> you, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. And for and for yeah. the layperson who might not understand what Amazon Web Services or you know what is the like human aspect of a of the right. cloud, could you like make that real and yeah. what it would mean for it to get disrupted? Yeah. Thank you for asking me that because I, I feel like I tend to take for granted that like once I always I always have make this mistake of assuming when I learn a fact that I was the last person to know and and <laughs> that everybody else already. Um, so uh, the cloud is, is a term that gets used to describe uh, parts of, of the internet or software that don't run on your personal computer or on your phone. Um, what it actually means is a bunch of other computers somewhere else, usually uh, in a building uh, with a bunch of other computers. Uh, 
consuming a lot of electricity and a lot of uh, energy because you need to keep uh, climate control because computers are very sensitive to things like too much heat. Um, and there's, and so companies uh, like Amazon have figured out that other people who need to run like a lot of computation very quickly um, or who need to scale up their business very quickly don't want to have to, you know, sink a bunch of money into building their own data centers, their own cloud um, to, to kind of make their company grow. And they can instead, you know, offload that to, you know, Amazon Web Services. Like they're, they're kind of a, like they, they sort of like resell like compute, like server space to other companies um, and to other like individual developers, right? Like, like, Technically, like like anyone can kind of make an Amazon Web Services account and use their tools, um, but probably the big uses are coming from uh, vendors like Netflix, right? So like Netflix makes up something like you know a, a fifth of like all internet traffic like at prime time on weekdays or something, uh, and like that traffic at this point I believe is like all running through uh, servers that are owned and run by Amazon. Uh, Netflix used to have a few of their own data centers, and I think they eventually kind of abandoned that. Um, and there are a few like competitors in the data center and cloud storage space to Amazon Web Services. Google Cloud has been growing partly because Google's just invested a lot in trying to become a bigger player in that space. Microsoft has cloud services, but Amazon sort of like far like kind of like they they're definitely the biggest player in the space um partly because they've been doing it the longest they launched in 2006 and at this point yeah like it's it's i don't remember like the exact numbers on how much of the internet is actually on amazon web services at this point in part because it's actually like it's very hard to track but if you just even if you just think about the fact that like netflix alone like is like like that plus, I think Airbnb uses Amazon Web Services. Not all of the parts of Slack use Amazon Web Services. Um, you can go to their website too. I should probably just pull it up. Um, basically, like a huge percentage of the websites that most people use every day uh, are actually like on Amazon real estate, as it were. Was that, is there, is, should I cover anything else? No, I'm still, I'm still listening to you. I like to let people finish. Um, is you. that, uh, yeah, no problem, no problem. Um, and so back to your friend's question, like kind of uh, when do we run out of time, right? So initially when the mayor of New York City, de Blasio, closed the public schools, it was kind of tentatively until April 20th that seems less and less likely. Um, and he did even within that same press conference say it might be until the end of the calendar year. Um, but as the months progress, back to your friend's question, like how long can we sustain um, this many people? Basically, everybody's on URL instead of IRL now, right? Um, yeah. So how long can we sustain this given the amount of humans that are just in their house? Yeah, I think the... So the, the thing with data centers and with the, with network infrastructure in terms of like what's going to, to take it out is I don't, it's, I don't think it's going to happen all at once. Um, there's, 
first of, because first of all because like the internet is designed against that kind of possibility happening um it's you know the it's designed to kind of route around outages but and it's a it's a it's a big scary but there are things that i think as more and more people are unable to work um and as more and more like kind of like of the frontline labor that uh prior to this was wildly taken for granted uh is is kind of taken out of commission the harder it will be to do the baseline maintenance and repair stuff that you need to keep a network running. So uh, when when this other reporter had asked me sort of about this sort of how long do we have, I I said you know I don't think that it's going to be that like all the date like no one's in the data centers and everything ends. It's more like you know a fucking like there's a really bad thunderstorm and a tree knocks out some power lines and some part of like New Jersey is out and that means that like a big part of the internet goes out um or like you're gonna have some kind of semi like can't get their internet back up because they can't get anybody to come out to fix the thing that's broken because there just aren't enough people on hand to do that repair and I think what we could see is like an accumulation of incidents like that that could create like basically blackout spots in patches and or like very large blackout spots right like if uh if there was some if something happened in like if there were like some kind of major disaster and outage in, in like downtown manhattan where or like in soho where some of the bigger kind of like internet exchanges which are sort of they're kind of like uh I've, you could compare them to maybe like highway interchanges like it's where different like things that travel through the internet travel through to kind of move from one network to another um if that went down um they have backup generators uh like all of these places do that would probably keep them operating for a little while but if they can't if like there just aren't enough people or there aren't enough or there like aren't enough resources or fuel is too expensive to keep like you know running the generator like that could go out um i think that in terms of like what's what i'm like most like place centers of most concern i don't think we're there yet uh i think that it's something that needs to be watched and kind of like monitored i i you know in a horrible fucked up way it's like well this at least this didn't start in the middle of like hurricane season or something um that like basically the possibility of a natural disaster also knocking out resources for at least the next couple months is in some parts of 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 the world isn't as high um because i think that's that's when you'd start to see some like really serious breakdowns um no that's really helpful um could you t could you maybe what do you feel like so on one half there's amazon web service the other half is that public health officials and like government officials are explicitly telling people to rely on delivery and ordering amazon even now if, although it's uh, only essential goods um and amazon prime um mm -hmm. and so what is the connection between this the amazon that's the, the delivery service um and mm -hmm. this like web-based server and kind of what what do you think about that infrastructure 
and what so, that means right now that we're relying so heavily on it. Yeah, one of the first things I thought when I saw that Amazon was going to be hiring like 100,000 more workers and was giving them all a raise was the only reason they can afford to do that is because everyone's online. Um, so a, a fun fact about how Amazon as a corporation operates is um, retail has really thin margins, even when you're Amazon, right? And retail has especially thin margins when you you pay your warehouse worker shit and you expect everything to arrive fucking yesterday, right? Um, I hope it's okay. Is it okay if I swear? Yeah, it's okay. Cool, just checking. Um, <laughs> and I've, I've had other situations where I was like, oh, I wasn't <laughs> over in here, oops. Um, but yeah, the, you know, retail still has really, really thin margins, especially when you're trying to sell everything super cheap, especially when you're doing free shipping for Prime accounts. Most of the like actual money made by Amazon, like the, the revenue part, um, aside from like stock and stuff is like, it's in Amazon web services. They actually, like that's where they actually make money, money. And um, one of the, like one of the interesting like speculations when, when trying to think about like a breakup of Amazon, like treating it as a monopoly and asking and making the companies that it kind of holds become separate entities is that like you couldn't, it's not clear you could actually sustain the retail operations at the speed and scale that they're at without Amazon Web Services. Um, so that's which, that's, that's the, I mean, I don't know if like, I wouldn't say there's like an obvious like one line from one to the, the other for this particular situation, but it seems well, like- Could you explain that of, like, a little any, bit more? Like as far as why, why does the retail so dependent on the web service? Um, because retail doesn't make a lot, so retail doesn't make, make a lot of money, right? Because the cost of like moving commodities, uh, is like pretty high. The cost of commodities is like a lot, but like, because Amazon sells things for cheaply and they make things move quickly and they don't pay the people who do that work very well, um, like, but they still have to pay a lot of people. Uh, it becomes a very like, it's like just, it's an expensive undertaking, like, I mean, it's it's the sort of thing like that. I, feel, I mean, it's it's like I guess I learned that when I first like worked in in retail environments, and like you learn that in in like food service pretty quickly, right? Like you can make a lot of money, but you're gonna sink it back into like all your other costs, right? Um, like trucks and gas and and all these other things that you know Amazon tries to automate away so that they can make more money. Um, but yeah, the other part of Amazon, so that, that side of Amazon, like it doesn't make a ton of money. It breaks even maybe a little more. Um, but to be able to afford to make other parts, like to do any kind of like big changes to it, like hiring hundreds of thousands of more people, like giving them all raises, um, other parts of Amazon, the company that like make more money kind of are gonna subsidize that activity. Um, and Amazon Web Services is the thing that historically has subsidized a lot of like Amazon's other operations. And it is the thing that right now is going to be making the most money because if a lot of people are going online using products that are hosted on Amazon Web Services, that's like like every visit to those services, every like hour spent on Zoom um, is going to be like 
compute time that like those companies have to pay to Amazon. So Amazon makes more money the more people have to use online platforms to live their lives and do their jobs. Um, and I should be, I should just to clarify, um, like Zoom, I think the last thing I saw on that, saw on them, they do have some of their own data center operations. And I think that they kind of under, like they subsidize that and have like additional support with AWS and maybe Google Cloud or Microsoft. I can't remember which one. Um, so I wouldn't say like, don't use Zoom because AWS like is, it's all on AWS, but like they are like, pieces of it are certainly a part of like are you know connected to aws well thank you that's really helpful i mean we're kind of at the 30 minute mark so i was just going to ask you do you want to talk a little bit about your book networks of new york right i kind of little it's it feels like it's a, a weird time to be talking about a, a, a book that's mostly designed to get people to go outside and walk around new york city um <laughs> i i guess the the it's also very relevant though. I mean, it's talking a lot about this, like that work infrastructure. Yeah, so um, one of the things that, so I, when I first kind of got into this stuff, um, I, I kind of foolishly assumed that like someone would just like, I would just be able to like find a map of where the cables all ran in New York City and where the big data centers were. And it turns out, you know, that map uh, is not available to the public. Um, and in fact, like, you know, can actually be a very expensive thing to obtain. Um, so I, uh, I started kind of just trying to understand the network infrastructure around me by like looking at the street um, and walking around. And I, I found that like talking to people working in like open manholes, talking to the guy in the Verizon truck, um, which is something that like, you know, with full disclosure, I think I can, I could get away with doing because I'm like a small, non-threatening looking white woman um, who can sort of see it's, I think, I think in some ways I like kind of benefited from people thinking I was just kind of like not very bright. Um, <laughs> and also benefited from the fact that people don't ask the guy who works on the cables um, for Verizon about what they do and doesn't think about that work as expertise and doesn't value it. Um, and, you know, so I learned a lot just from kind of like observing and talking to people who actually kind of do the maintenance side. Um, and then some of it I was able to, you know, some of this is written down. I'm not the only person who cares about Internet infrastructure uh, in, in New York City or certainly not in the world. But, uh, yeah, I kind of uh, like over time developed this like large kind of like lexicon of, of what different spray paint markings for buried utilities meant in terms of which companies and which kinds of like equipment were buried in specific conduits. And I mapped out some of the places that were kind of central nodes for like internet exchanges and stuff like that. And I, um, I was annoying my friends all the time whenever we walked places because I would want to stop and, and look at spray paint on the ground. <laughs> so I, uh, eventually I decided, you know, instead of, of, you know, irritating other people by doing this all the time, I would, I would put it all into a field guide for walking around New York City so that they could, they could have the experience of being distracted by things on the ground all the time without, uh, 
it, it initially, yeah, it's, it's sort of tongue in cheek in that like, you know, field guides are typically for things like birds or shells, I guess, um, things you would see, like things, things in like environments that are not urban. Um, but I find that like, the second that you start to attune the way that you look at a city in terms to like, it's to the like infrastructures that make it operate, whether that's going to be like buried utilities or cell towers or um, I'm trying to think of another example, or even just kind of like repair labor. Cause like, that's the sort of, it's the stuff that like you kind of in New York city in particular, you kind of learn to like, train your body to like avoid and ignore, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to deal with the construction work that's happening on, on like eighth Avenue. You just want to like get past it. You don't want to deal with it. You want to kind of like pretend like kind of like zone out because New York, it's like such an oversaturating thing. But when, when you kind of reframe the way you look at a city in terms of all of that stuff, it's, it actually makes it really apparent how, like just how dense, all of those the, the infrastructure really is, how much labor is required to make it really operate, um, and kind of how powerful and like ubiquitous it, it really is. Yeah, no, to me, I think uh, I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, yeah and it's, you know, I, I, it, it was a fun, like, it was fun to work on um in that like I made a lot of, like I the book has like only illustrations of all of the things so I like had to make drawings of spray paint um because I wanted you know in the spirit of like how a field guide will have like these illustrations of birds that are kind of like the idealized version of what seeing that bird would look like <laughs> I yeah. I kind of I liked the idea of like I don't want you to be looking for like a photograph that, of something that you saw once I want you to be like looking for like the general kind of like like kind of what it roughly should look like. What I like is this idea of making legible the infrastructure that people just kind of rely on and don't think about and can't even visualize. And I think we're in this weird moment where suddenly people are thinking about supply chains from ventilators and what it means yeah. to like 3D print really, a valve for a, that. It's a really weird time to be uh, someone who knows a lot about and has spent a lot of time paying attention to uh, things that like I kind of assume other people don't care about <laughs> um, because that's often been my experience uh, of boring people with this stuff and I, I and I feel like I've often felt like I had to kind of like convince people like oh no this is actually very interesting and important and, and now there very little convincing needs to happen uh, people people get and it's um I think one of the things that's like, I think that's been interesting to see is people starting to understand like the importance of kind of like how like, how like deeply interdependent all of the like mm -hmm. systems that by which we live really, really are, right? Um, there was a good article in um, The City, uh, the nonprofit, the new local kind of nonprofit news site about um, Hunts Point Market in the South Bronx where most of the food that's eaten in New York City kind of traffics through, right? Like that's where, where like restaurateurs will be like getting most of their goods and supplies. And one of the details in it that really fucked me up was like, there's plenty of food at the Hunts Point Market. The problem is not, and the problem will probably, you know, for at least for the, the present moment, 
it's not a problem of a, like a lack of goods. Um, it's a problem of like getting for now, right? And that's and that's partly because like agricultural networks aren't quite yet affected. Um, the second that you have agriculture, the second that agricultural laborers become in short supply, like which which will will probably happen, like then well, we're it is happening. Start the LA about, Times yeah. did a piece about that. Yeah, great, cool, all right. Now, pretty <laughs> here, okay. Um, but like the problem, like right now, there is this like it's a problem of like distribution, right? If all of the restaurants are like closed or the restaurants can't like afford or can't justify buying the same volume that they were when they were at capacity, that food's not, it's just gonna, it's just gonna sit there. Like it's not gonna get bought by someone else and it's just gonna go to waste. Um, and thinking about the way that like the, the well, and like, you know, like also just that like, the only distribution logic that exists within this network is like is like the buying of things, right? Like the the possibility of like, what if you took all the food that's not selling at this market and you created a mechanism for like bringing it to people for free? Like, cause it's like, well, you're not gonna, it's like, if you're not gonna make money on it anyway, like why, why bother? But they were so accustomed to things having to work through markets and treat things as commodities uh that 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 like the inability to kind of get outside of that paradigm i think is it creates like a lot of the is and is going to exacerbate a lot of the crises we're about we're facing well this is responding to the crisis in the moment but there also feels like you know, when 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 we begin to phase back into something like a normal life, it's hard to know when or that will happen or what it would look like. But if Wuhan is any guide, I mean, they slowly seem to be reopening. It feels like a very much like a before Corona, after Corona. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what some of those infrastructures will look like post Corona when we start going back. And, you know, many of the restaurants will likely have gone under depending on how long this takes. Um and then we already have the 1% flying out to their Hamptons apartments, uh, their Hamptons houses. Like, who, who, who's going to remain? Yeah, I mean, first, I, like, I feel like the, like, the, like, I'm going to, like, go, like, hide in my bunker thing is, or, like, like, it's not bunker, park house in the Hamptons, but, like, like, <laughs> like, I understand being concerned about, like, density, um, but it's just, it, it's going to be a lot harder to, like, like, the resources come here first, like, the supply chains are already set up to most to bring the food to the urban cores first. So I don't really know if I think that it's it's like a better idea to like go like hide out upstate in like a town of a thousand people with like one supermarket. Um, but I think I don't know. I mean, if I knew if I knew what after looked like, I think um, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be so desperately looking for freelance work right now. <laughs> uh, I would be I would be a much more powerful person. But I, I, I do think like one of the things that is, is hard to do right now um, and that I'm, I'm trying to kind of make more space for is to look at decisions happening right now or speculation happening right now and try to actually play out what that what those long terms would look like, right? Um, I, last year, I, I collaborated with um, my friend Brendan Byrne on a, on a fiction project. It was kind of the first really big 
science fiction thing I'd, I'd done since like maybe college. Uh, and we, we, uh, we were, we've been like talking all week, just kind of intermittently like, oh man, like people really need to be writing sci-fi right now. People really, really need to be like yeah. playing out the futures because uh, it's, it's in the at like because it is it's so easy to kind of just get in the now of this and, and if in the absence of kind of being able to even just for a little moment step back and see like everything like see like the things that are th decisions that are being made now and kind of the, the urgency of the moment what they could look like as like longer tail consequences whether it's like for the you know ultimate dystopian endpoint or the ultimate utopian one um, so I, I don't, and I think it's, um, we're still, we're still trying to figure out how to pull that one. I mean, we know how to write fiction, but like figure, we're, we're trying to figure out how to make space for other fiction writers and kind of get more of a, like, create more of like an environment or platform for that. So that's a like TBD. Um, but I think the, but that also sounds like an awesome challenge. Cause I mean, just you talking about being a freelancer, I feel like for people, yeah. I think there's already a lot of people in this stage of neoliberalism in an economically precarious situation, but yeah. under this circumstance, um, it seems like life is almost unsustainable. There's only like the benefit of it just affecting so many people across sectors that there feels like there has yeah. to be some kind of federal stimulus package that helps people out. Um, yeah. What does it mean to create a platform I mean, for fiction writers? Yeah. Uh... We're, we're, we don't know. Uh, we're hoping we can. Um, I think it's it's also like looking, I mean, looking at some of the models that have already been existing, right? Like subscription and like subscription-based newsletters and um, sort of like crowdfunded things for freelancers. I think right now the hard part is like everyone's kind of maxing out, right? Because like, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm worried about money and like I've been, you know, giving wherever I can to like I mean, like, I gave money to Brendan's GoFundMe last night because the bar that he works at is closed for the foreseeable future, and he doesn't have a day job, or I guess a night job. That's how bars work. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I, I feel like there's, it's this, this really weird balance of, for me at least, like, knowing I am, I am, like, this is the time of year that I would be like lining up my summer and fall gigs and that's just not happening. And I am both aware of like how I work and how I make money is going to have to change dramatically. And also knowing that like so many other people are in this position. So many people are, are in like more precarious positions than I am. And however, and, like how, how can I best show up? And that's part of it. I think why this conversation about sort of trying to create more space for fiction has come up is because it's, um, you know, as, as uh, Seven of Nine once said in Star Trek Voyager and uh, as mm -hmm. um, St. Mandel, John Mandel quoted that, that scene in, uh, at this, in her novel Station Eleven, like survival is insufficient. Uh, we need to make space for thinking about the future. We need creativity right now. And, and I... And I think we need to make, uh, we need to not like kind of be so reliant on tropes of dystopia that we're used to, right? Um, because it's, it's, it's not, it's never exactly like that. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, 
In some ways, the end times feels a little bit more insidious than I had anticipated. I thought there'd be like rock, like there'd be rockets, there'd be some kind of 9 11 moment that had like a finite beginning and end in a way that this is so much more amorphous. A, um, yeah, sorry to jump over, but uh, I, yeah, yeah. there's a William Gibson's, uh, not his most recent novel, but the one before it, um, The Peripheral, has this concept of the apocalypse called the jackpot and um it describes basically this sort of like slow apocalypse because it's this this time where like over a couple of decades basically 80 percent of the world's population dies and it's you know it's it's all of the things right it's pandemics it's, it's uh it's like antibiotic resistant you know diseases emerging it's climate change it's war, it's like all like just kind of that perfect storm that emerges in parallel to like massive advances in like geoengineering and, and like carbon capture and biotech and nanotech. And, you know, it's, it's sort of bitterly referred to as the jackpot because on the one hand, like all of the things to kind of like create a threat, like to kind of like save the world emerge, but part of the ability to implement them happens because of like mass extinction events. Um, and that for a long time has felt like the most compelling and plausible version of what like the end of the world is, could look like to me. And it's been really hard not to think about that, that book and uh, about that concept. Um, in the last couple of weeks. I feel like this is very like early stage jackpot. But at the same time, I think I was just thinking about your first comments about uncertainty and also my favorite line from the urban omnibus piece is that uh, yeah. crime mappers hawk a model of a future world where the cost of guaranteed order would be accountability to the public. And so part of them selling this model is that it remains to be seen, right? And I, I feel like it still remains to be seen what our future is going to look like. And I yeah. think we just don't know right now what would resistance, what what is the material ways that could manifest. But I think people need, people will figure figure something out if they feel like there's leadership, if they feel like there's something not just worth fighting, uh, not just worth fighting for, but like a path forward or just like some kind of nascent thing to grab hold of right now. I think just people uh, seem right now to be afraid and just so uncertain about like what is even happening. Yeah, no, I guess I, I don't bring up that, that example to be like, eh, it's all ruined. It's more that, like, I think the, uh, I mean, there's both. something, I yes, there's something. Yeah, and I think, it, I mean, it's it's the other, like, thing I think a lot about is how, like, incredible, beautiful things can emerge through these things, right? Like, I people people seem to be really fond of, remember, like, no, rem like, noticing that, like, and remembering like, ah, oh, parable of the sower, like called all of this happening. It's like, yeah, but it also like gave us Earthseed, which is like such a beautiful, like kind of like philosophical kind of position in ideology. And it gave us these models of kind of cooperative living that maybe we could learn from those and not just be scared about all the things that like Butler got right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. Well, speaking of which, um, I think we're going to wrap it up if you want to make some last comments. And also, I always like to ask people, like, do you want to recommend? I mean, there's definitely your book, but anything else that you're reading, watching, listening to right now that you want to share? Yeah. I, so I'm trying to, to make sure that I not just plug books that everyone's already heard of or read, because I know a lot of, like, I mean, like, 
quite frankly, I know a bunch of people who like have books either that have just come out or are about to come out or like came out a couple months ago whose entire like publicity and book tours got completely fucked by this. So um, I, uh, my, my friend Joanne McNeil's uh, debut book, Lurking, which is sort of a, a history of the internet from the perspective of a user as opposed to sort of the the histories of the internet as as told by like great men building things or like corporations doing things it's sort of what was it like to use tools and products as the internet kind of like transformed and emerged um i really i really really enjoyed that um i just i'm like halfway through um rule of capture by christopher brown which is a pretty dystopian sci-fi novel um but a weirdly useful one to be reading right now. And it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's, I think Chris is a really good at creating uh, procedural dramas that you actually care about, like in the sense of like, oh, law, this is fun. Um, and he's very good at creating characters who are very much far from perfect uh, and also are always, like are really you can kind of are always like genuinely trying their best with the tools and strategies they have and um that's something i kind of also need to like remind myself of sometimes when when frustrated with myself or with you know the sense of like the world being as as fucked as it sometimes feels like it can be is is, is the ways that so much of what is so much of what like is terrifying or like fucked up that other people do to each other comes out of coping strategies that they learned somehow that were effective at some point. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to ah, so do this in the middle of the pandemic. Sorry, you broke up for one second. Oh, I just, I wanted to apologize again for messing up on the time. Um, but thank you for thinking of me. Uh, this was fun. No, honestly, I'm shocked that people agree to anything right now. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of crazy. Like, if I was writing a book, it'd be like, is this believable? That this is character I really asked somebody to take time of their life to do an interview in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, frankly, I feel like all conversations are slightly about, like, cathartic therapy of, like, oh, you also exist and are going through this right now. So I think, I think everyone kind of can use it. <laughs> no, I really, I mean, I've learned so much, even in the just the last few interviews that I've done with you, with Jasmine, with Chris. Um, and I just feel like there's a lot of content that's like breaking news. This is the latest thing that's happening to you. And these are like the body numbers. Um, but there's <laughs> not a lot of like, like, I don't know, frameworks, through which you can really understand everything. I mean, there's like a whole series of like contagion and outbreak and like move, like mm -hmm. dystopian movies about pandemics. Um, but I'm I feel like right now, at least for me, I'm really like trying to understand what's going on. Um, so that's yeah. I'm excited. I appreciate it. I feel like there's the thing. Like it's it's I still haven't watched Contagion, and I almost like kind of am refusing to at this point because I'm like I don't want to. Yeah, but I'm like, I don't want to pretend anyone knows what they're fucking doing. Like, but they it's almost like neurologists so heavily for that movie, which yeah. is why I think it's really is really good. It's not like uh, The Walking Dead or something. It's more yeah. like now. Okay. All right. Maybe I should give it another shot. And importantly, actually, in the last minute, they they show the process through which that virus spread, and I feel like a lot of people don't realize how 
coronavirus is linked to like deforestation and the bats and like anthropo anthropod yeah. environments that like bring insects that the bats eat. All right, well, cool. I appreciate this. Thank you. I'm gonna yeah. trans. I'm gonna have this transcribed and edited, and yeah. then hopefully it'll be out this week.